Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. Dan Hammond, you've undertaken a really interesting thing and really heartfelt thing. So many, many households across Europe have offered to take in Ukrainian refugees, particularly mothers and children, as a result of the the war. And you have also offered to do this with your family as well. So it's a big thing. It's it, it yes, in in a way it is. I think it's been a fascinating experience because, well, for a start, I would say the UK is doing a lot of people in the UK are doing this, um, but it is nothing like. Just just sheer proximity means that, for example, Poland, I think, has over a million families living in other people's houses. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary generosity. But for us, it was really interesting. It came up, it was a thing, and we just said, look, we've really got to do this. And I have to say, all the time through the build-up, we kept on saying, can we really do this? You know, we have really busy lives. We're very fortunate. We, we're, we're very lucky. We're comfortable. But, you know, we're running a startup. We work <laughs> long hours. We have loads. We have two young adults living in the house with us already, our offspring. So and we kept on having questioning ourselves whether we could actually do it. And yeah, there were, there were a few tears along the way. <laughs> but ultimately, you, you, you know that that could be you. These people are from but it doesn't matter where they're from, but they're just humans who've been displaced by an act of war. And we would want to be, if it was us, and it easily could be, we'd want to be welcomed. And we find ourselves in a situation that we that our parents experienced at the end of the Second World War and we thought would never happen again. And I think that's probably what's been so interesting that we're having to make some choices around that. And I, I hope we can touch in future episodes on the learning, both for your guests and for you, and because it will probably shape you, as it probably will shape the guests that we're about to hear from today. Yeah, definitely. I think, look, it's really interesting you mentioned that, the kinder transport, and because we, you know, just six weeks ago, two months ago, we were at a house, we went to an opening of a house locally, which had a blue plaque put on it to commemorate the fact that they took children in from the kinder transport, and without knowing that only weeks later, we'd be in exactly the same position again in Ilkley. It's, it's, un, it's unheard of. And it's a, obviously a key moment for, for liberty. I think there's a lot to talk about here, about this experience, as you say, for us and the guests and how we, how we live together. One thing I would say is it's quite easy to get frustrated about what's going on in the world at the moment. And what I think I've mentioned before, my, my, my daughter Ella went to work in Calais at the, the refugee camps over the summer. And we realized what she was doing was something practical. And I think for this is sort of a lesson that we've learned is it's easy to get all agitated about things that are basically out of our control. This is something we could do. And we realize that it's going to be something practical and healing for us to, to not have that learned helplessness of this this sort of environment that we're in, but to actually do something practical. So we're definitely going to gain from it. And there probably might still be a few tears along the way, but I think that they'll all be in the learning. <laughs> always, always, always. Yeah. Um, and as you say, I think that we're going to have a similar, some interesting stories about people getting up, getting out of their comfort zone and doing something different when we meet Janet and Reed Boswell, who are our guests today. They've got a wonderful story to tell about them leaving the 
delicious comfort of Winchester, Massachusetts, and going to a foreign place to help others. So let's uh, let's have a listen to that interview now. Welcome, Janet and Reed. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Excellent. And our first episode with two people, and and it's a couple. So this is incredible. So we're very excited, and thank you very much for bravely putting yourself forward. So let's let's get some intros, Janet. But what's um? Tell us um what you get up to when you're not uh, sitting here in front of a microphone. I am working in a, an organization that promotes early literacy uh, and embeds the program into a network of volunteer pediatric providers. Excellent. Thank you. And Reed? I am an occupational medicine physician. I work in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My clientele consists mostly of a life sciences company, biopharma, biotech, we also provide services to municipalities, nursing homes, healthcare, and so forth. Fantastic. And we're going to explore the other things you two have been doing when those two things don't uh, keep you busy. So I've got a, we always start with a little card game where we ask out so that we can get to know a little bit about our guests. And I normally have to pick one of these at random, but I, I spotted this as I was shuffling the pack and I thought, no, Reed and Janet have to answer this question. And it is, I annoy my partner slash best friend by... Basically, how do you annoy each other? Janet, do you have any ways in which you can annoy Reed? I routinely annoy him by saying, as I mentioned last night three times, oh, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I annoy her by going, I don't remember that. <laughs> the, the couple amnesic conversation that is very, <laughs> that's right, that rotates around. Yeah. What I was actually going to answer was, I admittedly overthink things, and she hates that. Yeah. You know, especially like directions to somewhere, you know, in the car. And so you need well, this way or whatever. I'm just, well, oh, please. <laughs> I think that's why we get on, Reed. Uh, Juliet always says uh, to, to me, that's, um, you let, let me overthink that for a minute. So brilliant. Thank you for answering that question so fluidly. But take us into this world that we're going to talk about, can you? Why don't we kick off with you, Janet, again? Just take us into the world. What are we going to be talking about around teams today? Reed and I have both had the great pleasure and honor being part of teams that have gone back to post-earthquake Haiti since 2012. And every year we've gone with a bunch of medical and non-medical volunteers and mobile medical clinics in rural communities in the Laogon area of Haiti that really have no access to routine medical care of any sort whatsoever and are extremely poor. Let me give you some background on how this started, this medical mission. This was a homegrown project in our Episcopal parish in Winchester. The year after the earthquake in 2010, our primary care internist who happened to be a member of our parish who had done mission work formed a team, a small team. They got some medications, they raised some money, and they went to Laogon. It was almost like a pilot program. Does this work or not? And they had set up clinics at these various villages and came back to us and said, this helps. This people welcomed us. They, this feels like it's a, a useful service to these poor people. So we wanted to expand the team. So I was heavily recruited simply because I have MD after my name. That's really it. 
And I, I didn't want to go. I'm sorry. I, first of all, it's, it was my professional insecurity. This is, you know, rural tropical medicine is not my bag. I, the, I have done primary care in the past, but I oversee lab safety in the biotech industry, things like that. So I was, so I did have some professional insecurity, but I also, I just, I'm not a go with a third world kind of guy. I, I admit that I don't like to be inconvenienced. I don't want to be hot and, and without water or air conditioning and that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't want to be dirty, but anyway, so I was reluctant to go, but I was, please come. And honestly, the, the person who convinced me to go is Janet. She said, you know what, you need to get off your butt. But actually, she made a trade. Though. She said, if I go to Haiti, she would go to, we have another mission that goes to an orphanage in Honduras. So she said, I'll go to Honduras if you go to Haiti. Equally inconvenient, you can you can do it. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And in my mind, I thought, I'm just, okay, I, I'll do my little thing. I'll tag along. I'll write the prescriptions, whatever, and everybody else can you know, just tell me what to do. But that was my mindset going into my first trip to Haiti in 2012. And just background, it's all homegrown. We raise our own money. We buy medical supplies from a discount pharmaceutical company. We carry the medications ourselves in 50-pound duffel bags. Getting through customs was fun. Um, <laughs> you know, and then we were picked up by volunteers from a hospital in Leogon. They have a, a guest house where we stayed. So they load us up into pickup trucks and Land Rovers and flatbed trucks. And we rumbled our way through Port-au-Prince. And to get from the airport to Leogon, you must go through Port-au-Prince and the worst parts of Port-au-Prince. So here we are coming from the States, and this is the first I'm seeing abject poverty. And it's not just abject poverty, but it's post-earthquake abject poverty. Tent cities, things crumbled, the palace had pancaked on itself. It was an absolute mess. And that was just jaw-dropping that people were living like this, quite frankly. So this was, again, it was, it was all a homegrown mission that sort of expanded. And we recruited people from outside of our parish we had a couple from the local Jewish temple that came. He was a podiatrist. She was a pharmacologist. He was our pharmacist. We had a nurse practitioner come from Oregon to come with us. So there was a lot of re recruitment, and we ended up with maybe 15 people that first trip. And from my perspective, we got there and, and started unloading our, our, all these bags of stuff, and it wasn't organized. And I just realized, I looked around and I realized, I can't just kind of do my little thing. We're all going to be depending on each other for everything. That's how teams play into this. But So paint the picture of how do, yeah, how do teams help you to achieve this? We actually had two teams. We had people who were very savvy about fundraising and event management because we had to raise a very big chunk of money in the United States to buy all the things. And then there were people who were really clever about space and organizing and 
figuring out how to portion out all the medications that we had over the five days so that we would not um, arrive at a community and not have what we needed because we'd given it all away the day before. And people, they gravitated and floated into the roles that that suited them and where their strengths lay. So the people who were organizational gurus would get out of the truck and look at the ruined church and say, we should put the pharmacy here and people should wait here. And, um, you know, we should set up the doctor's uh, stools over here. Everybody sort of uh, over time, and it was like that, that classic team dynamic that we got there and everybody crashed into each other and then we got organized and we went from limping along to being this well-oiled machine by the end of the week. And we would develop log jams during the week because the patients would they take too long to go from point A to point B or it took us too long to fill the prescriptions and we had to figure out how to slow down one part and speed up the other. And it was logistically really challenging, but it all worked really well. And we had a different cast of characters every year. That, But the people who were organizationally inclined gravitated to the things that they were good at. And that's what, that was the beauty and the magic of the team in Haiti. It didn't, the, the characters changed, but somebody filled different roles every time. And because we had people who had been there before, we had this sort of institutional knowledge of this is a function that needs to happen. And we were able to direct somebody with the skill set into that role. And I'm talking about people who were volunteers who were not medical because our team was only half medical. The other half of us had to become instant experts in what organ system are these drugs associated with. And how do we get the information to the translators about how medication should be taken and when it should be taken and how it should be stored so that it doesn't disintegrate in the tropical sun? But the one thing I wanted to mention that we haven't touched on is the fact that our team in the United States was only half a team because once we got to Haiti, it became this much bigger thing. We had a Haitian dentist, a Haitian doctor, the dentist's assistant. We started after a while taking nurses from the local nursing school with us, and we hired a nurse from the local nursing school. And then we had drivers and translators, and we were a nice full employment project for that community. And teams like us who came along behind us did the same thing and kept them employed, which was really terrific. It's that interesting thing, isn't it, that we can all feel that we have a, a comfortable level of expertise within our own comfort zone. But what you're talking about is taking your expertise and putting that into quite a challenging context where you, you then have to rely on other humans because there's going to be gaps of, of the knowledge. There's going to be that that whole contextual organizational piece. And it sounds like that that might have been a little chaotic at the start, but that but but actually you then ironed that out to work out both on the ground and within the team. Who has that? Who has that knowledge? Yeah. So very quickly, the when I say the providers, the, the physicians and nurse practitioners who are actually seeing the patients, we quickly coalesced and said, okay. That's your skill set. This is my skill set. 
I may be an occupational health doc, but I, you know, pretty good with dermatology and musculoskeletal stuff. We had an OBGYN, okay. Pregnant women, go see her. We're back and forth about, this is something I'm uncomfortable with. Let's talk it through. So we were very, it was very, probably the most collaborative professional relationship I've ever had with other physicians. Uh, and was that a surprise? Yes, it was. It was, and it was exciting and it was good. I, I remember sitting next to Gloria, our, our OBGYN, and she looked over at me and said, what would you be doing right now if you were back in the States? And I said, filling out insurance forms, but are you doing that? <laughs> oh, this- <laughs> it's, it sounds very glamorous, your job, Reed. You make it sound very glam. Um, but and did you ever talk about how you work together? So beyond the task, did you actually talk about how you'd interconnect and how that teamwork thing was going. Yeah, absolutely. We Even at the end of the day, we would share stories and how did you manage this level of hypertension? And I saw this, I've never seen that before. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion, even at the end of the day, professionally about what's happening, what did you see? And this is all new to all of us. Not, much of it was very routine the usual stuff, high blood pressure, diabetes, but skin things we'd never seen before, neurologic things we'd never seen before, and sort of pieced together. We had our little Hippocrates apps and trying to figure out dosages of this or that, or what's the best medication for scabies and things like that. But it was a very fun collaboration because it wasn't about bitching about insurance companies. It was about doing real medicine. And I got to see some of that too, because the doctors and the pharmacist worked so closely. And I was a pharmacy grunt running around filling things and cutting pills and that sort of thing. But we only had a limited formulary. We were only able to bring certain things with us. Some of the medications we had, we had to use for people who were smaller than they were intended for. So there was a lot of dosage calculation. And and I would see the providers come running in and talking to the pharmacist. And there was a spark. There was an energy of excitement about it. We're all out of this. Could we possibly use that? It was, it was intellectually challenging for everybody who was participating. And I do the same thing every day. And in Haiti, I never did the same thing twice because it was different all the time. And that was exciting and incredibly rewarding. And when you're going through something like that with people that casually, I have a bond with the people that I've been to Haiti with, even though in our walks of life at home, we have often very little to do with each other. There's just a closeness that remains a residual that I don't experience with any other team I've been a part of. So it sounds like you had a really clear sense of purpose, you know, that going and doing medicine, not filling in insurance forms. Was there anything else that really made the teamwork work? Because it does, it's not always automatic. Was there anything else, any other magic ingredients, do you think? I think the people that we were able to recruit to our team and it was all word of mouth. We didn't put something out on Facebook or something. They were people who had a common sense of what our role should be, that we weren't just going to do something 
because it was an important thing to do. We were going to be with people and be part of what was going on with them. There was a lot of writing out there about missions and the philosophy of missions and whether do-gooders from the West should be going to other countries and doing this kind of work. We were all really, whether we agreed entirely about any of those philosophical questions, we were all really thoughtful about them and willing to engage with the other organizations that we encountered. While we were in Haiti, we ran into public health workers, hospital employees, people from another couple of really important nonprofits that are Haiti-led. And we did some collaborative work with them, and we've subsequently been able to support them financially and some grant writing, that sort of thing that we were able to do for them. But what made the dream work in terms of my own personal opinion about all this is that we all had this common desire to do something in response to what we saw going on in Haiti and what we hoped and dreamed the country could be with less intervention, negative intervention and more positive support. I think one of the benefits was that not just providing medical care, but simply showing up. These people saw us coming to them because we wanted to help. And that was a kind of Enough for them. You just came. Okay. Whether your medicine works or not, at least you came and you tried and you showed up yeah. and you cared. And, um, and it meant a lot to them. That's a profound impact, both on the people in Haiti, but also that this, this experience and, and doing multiple missions must have a, I would imagine, a shaping impact on you personally. How has it changed your concept of how you connect with humans to get stuff done back at home? I would say that the reason I wanted to go to Haiti in the first place was because I saw what a life-changing experience it was for Reed. Here he was, this guy who didn't want to go and doesn't like change and he doesn't really enjoy traveling. And here he came back and it was clearly transformative and it had a, a bumping additionally transformative effect every time he came back. So clearly something changed with, with him that I wanted to experience as well, which is why I was so thrilled about going. But I think going to Haiti and, you know, a lot of the team members were significantly older than I am. And some of them were a little bit, they traveled in different circles than I did. And they had different thoughts about some things. And I learned as, when I was interacting with them really closely that I could trust them to be there, to do what they were there to do, and to treat me without any kind of lenses and boxes that we would have with each other at home. And I try when I'm dealing with people now on teams that I'm not familiar with or who don't, don't have similar backgrounds from mine uh, to assume that level of trust and cooperation is going to be there wherever I am. And it's theirs to disprove. I, again, going way out of my comfort zone felt, you know, it was like that the old roller coaster thing. It was uh, at once scary and thrilling. And then coming back to the States, it, it puts a whole new lens on how I see healthcare and 
you know, especially in Massachusetts and Cambridge, which is Mecca of healthcare in this country. And I thought to myself, well, we, for example, we saw a young girl who had new onset seizure disorder. What am I doing with that in the middle of a mango grove? In Boston, this kid would get an MRI, top-notch neurology, workup, medications. And all we had was one seizure medication and probably not enough to get her through until she could get more. And I thought, we take so much for granted. And to think what these third world people go through without the kind of healthcare that we have, as imperfect as it is, it, it's a bit eye-opening and it just changes how I interact with my patients um, here. And I don't know, I, I guess um, just thinking back to the, our working together, and, and Janet's right about the whole trust thing, is I've opened up to my team at work and I feel like I'm trusting them more to do their job and not trying to do it for them because I am a control freak. And that's the one thing you cannot Haiti, um, trying to do everything and you, and letting go, I guess is a good way to put it is, is, you know, let people do their job. I think you've put your, your finger on it. Sometimes we expect other people to change, but in actual fact, when we make the change and sometimes that comes through a choice that we make, but it's, it's a chemistry thing, isn't it, amongst the team? So if you make that change yourself, that's going to have an impact on the way that the dynamics flow and you'll get different results. But quite often we're waiting for everybody else to change and that becomes quite frustrating. Janet Reed, it's been great hearing your story and uh, taking us into that uh, unimaginable world. And my admiration for you goes even further hearing that you're sort of Reed, and I didn't realize how you were not that sort of person. So it's, it's really impressive to go right out of your comfort zones and, and go and do that. I'm going to ask you to, you've sort of maybe covered this a little bit, but given these experiences, what, what um, would you say to someone in a team, a team leader or a team member today? What's, uh, what's your word of advice to them to, to help them to connect and get stuff done? I would say that you need to really examine what you're doing and why you're doing it before you go running off and doing a trip like this. Does it make sense? Not the, am I going to be comfortable or am I going to freak out the first time I see somebody with a machete wound or, you know, but which was one of my pervasive fears. My pervasive fear about going to Haiti <laughs> was, am I going to just lose my mind when somebody comes into the art clinic with a machete wound? But no, think about, does what I want to do make sense? Am I willing to do the whatever it takes to get to the end of this project, whether it's rattling around in a mountain in the back of a pickup truck where the tail keeps flopping open and you have to hang on to the person you're sitting next to, like literally that level of team dependence. Are you up for it? And and I would say do it because it is going out of your comfort zone and doing something different and exciting and important just makes life so much richer than being afraid to try things like that. And I would echo that is if you're reluctant to jump in, you know, look inward and what are your barriers for not doing what you think is right? Is there something about your 
daily life that you cling to, that you can't give up at least for a week to do something different, do something meaningful. Yeah, I, I find that really, really inspiring, actually. I think for many of us listening to this, we will look in and think, what do we need to give up internally in order to be able to give more and, and actually probably gain a lot in the process? And, and in a true we not me spirit, I mean, Pierre and I, we talk a lot about this. We've found that there's a lot more community activity going on now. So we don't have to leap on a plane and do what you've done in Haiti. There's opportunities to give of ourselves, isn't there? So you've really inspired our listeners today. So Janet, Reed, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on We Not Me. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful. See you again, Aaron, and nice to meet you, Pierre. It struck me listening to Janet and Reed that coming out of your comfort zone actually was quite a transformative experience. You know, you have that high level of expertise, but in a contained, safe, expected environment. And then you take it into a completely different environment. And what they appeared to get out of it was that they just had to collaborate and they had to trust one another because there were so many factors that they didn't know about that that, um, were disruptive. And it brought out a completely different way that humans connect. And I think what I also observed was that didn't just stay there in Haiti. They brought that back into their own working lives. And that's being able to transfer that. It probably was the most incredible leadership development and teamwork experience that they could have ever gone on, but probably didn't anticipate would be that. Indeed. I think it's it's really easy for these for you to go off and do these things and come back with it as a medal on your chest. You are unchanged, but with a, some sort of thing that people can talk about, that they allowed it to to change them, actually. And I think and that's really important. I was really reflecting on on Reed's sort of two journeys, if you like. One is from reluctant to go to actually going, the physical journey. But I think the even bigger one was how he annoys Janet is by being a control freak and um, overthinking (laughs) things, but had to learn to let go in order to work with a team. And I think that was such a, um, that was an even bigger journey, I think, I suspect. And we have to, I think, in teams, if we're going to make it work, we have to change ourselves. To, to adapt to, to make it work and I, there were some lovely examples of that in there and some really um, challenging circumstances so and I think too that just to cap that is how much are we sometimes imprisoned by our own comfort zone just like the decision that you've made with your Ukrainian guests that can bear down on us and we can justify why we stay the same but actually we need to get into the discomfort in order to be able to explore what may be possible. And that's not always easy, but I think being aware of that as yourself and aware of that in a team is really powerful, opens up all sorts of opportunities. In so many ways, actually, I got the impression that that physical comfort, but also that, as you said, that tech, that professional comfort, this is what I do. I can't go off and do that. Now, actually, right, let me put myself into that space. And uh, yeah, this, this is in order for the team to function. So yeah, quite inspiring. So, um, well, that's fantastic. Kicked off season three with, with, with really gone straight to the heart of it. Now, I think our next guest is a viral phenomenon from about 
you know, 15 months ago. So who is up next? We have the uh, legendary Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver coaches some challenging teams or teams in, in a large council area in the UK. And of course, she became very famous in February 2021, didn't, we, didn't she, for a recorded Zoom meeting. The Hanforth Parish, when there was some interesting behaviour and she shut it down by ejecting them from the call. So the meme of you have no authority, Jackie Weaver, has probably hit YouTube many, many times around the world. But we really need to understand a bit more of the thinking behind it. Let's take it down another level and look at the teamwork that exists there, but also what her learnings have been from the last year. Yeah, cannot wait for that. But that is it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. Also, please go onto your favourite podcast platform and give us a nice five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to participate in the show, you can leave us a voice message. The link is in the show notes. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 